Um, let's begin. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for um, just uh, being able to come to Sunday School and to dig into your scriptures, uh, especially as we look at this practice of uh, baptism. Lord, I pray that um, we would have a, a open heart, a humble heart, um, an excited heart to learn about uh, the gift you give us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so we are now well, well, well into our study. Um, the fifth lesson. Uh, next week will be the final lesson and we will be finished. Next week we're going to wrap it all up and it's all going to come together um, because I'm sure that for many of you, uh, you've forgotten some of the points. Okay, so we're going to begin as we do always review what we learned last week. All right, so last week we saw, right, that point A uh, baptism is a ceremonial washing, the cleansing of sin, right? Um, and so, you know, baptism doesn't just, it's not just a completely new thing that came in the New Testament uh, out of nowhere, like out of a vacuum, right? But it's drawing from the very rich background in the Old Testament. And, and in the Old Testament, there were all these ceremonial washings. And uh, the picture we have here, right, is that you're unclean, right? which is a picture of, 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 uh, of sin, right? That you're a sinner. And then you go to being clean, right? Which is that you're righteous. And the way you get there is by washing, right? Through baptism, okay? Um, and if you look at this uh, symbolism, this is the reason why we only baptize once, okay? You don't baptize two or three times. Um, actually, in all world religions, there are ceremonial washings. And in all the world's religions, you wash numerous times, again and again, uh, day after day, or month after month, year after year. But in Christianity, Christianity is the only world religion where you have your ceremonial washing once. Why is that? Do you guys remember what the reason is from last week? Why do we only have once versus all the world religions where they do it again and again and again? Christ died once. Yeah, I mean, we don't need to... It's not like we're washed and then we become dirty again, right? Because Christ sacrificed himself for us and gave us his righteousness, uh, once we're clean, we're clean. We don't become dirty again and therefore we need to be re-cleansed, right? Christ sacrificed himself once and for all. Okay, um, point number two, or point B, sorry. Since baptism is ceremonial washing, the actual amount of water is unimportant, right? And so we looked at that, right? That the ceremonial washing is symbolic. Okay? It's not an actual real washing. Um, so that if it were a real washing, right? If the point was really to become unclean and then clean, you, you should go jump into the tub right and get your um your what do you call that loofah and soak and you'd have to really like exfoliate right you have to make sure that you truly get all the dirt off your body okay but you don't have to do that in baptism because why it's a ceremony right it's it's a ritual and therefore the water is what's important right because water is the medium through which you are clean but the actual amount of water is unimportant, it's insignificant. So that even if it's like little drops, 
it's okay. Or if it's like pouring, it's okay. Or if you have a whole bunch of water and you're immersed, you know, how much water is not so much important as, as the fact that there's water. I remember last week, um, Kay asked the question, can, can you be baptized with, um, what was it, soda? And uh, I was like, no. And then uh, Meredith came up after and she says, you, you can't be baptized with soda because soda is all sugary, right? And so I think if you, would bath, if you were cleansed with soda, you'd be all sticky and gross, right? So it doesn't work, right? The water is what's significant. What? Be dirtier, yeah. Yeah, you'd be dirtier, right? That's right. Um, and in fact, if you look at um, the Old Testament, right? If you look at all these uh, ceremonial washings in the Old Testament, in fact, the dominant mode that you see is not immersion, it's not pouring, it's actually sprinkling, right? So let's look at that verse. Uh, Tom, can you read it? Exodus 36. Um, Exodus? I'm sorry, Ezekiel. Oh, okay. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. Yeah, so I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you'll be clean. Right? You don't need to actually really scrub. Uh, are there any quick questions from last week? What we so that's basically last week's. We looked at all the rich verses from that. Any thoughts? Any comments? All right. Uh, all right. So let's start the lesson. Okay. So we've been looking at. Uh, I want to circle back to infant baptism. Um, so we've been looking at infant baptism, right? And. Um, I think now, now that we've looked at all the, uh, you know, the, the passages about infant baptism, it's very, very helpful at this point to realize right, that the argument for infant baptism is really a certain way of reading scripture. Okay? Um, and the issue is continuity and discontinuity between the Old and New Testament. So let me write those two words down because they're pretty big words. Okay, continuity... Discontinuity. Okay. So what does what do those words mean? It's just a fancy way of saying that continuity just means it's just continuous, it's connected, right? And discontinuity means that there's like a break. Alright? So infant baptism is really kind of like the outworking of a certain way of reading scripture. And if you read scripture with the assumption of continuity, it's the idea that the Old and New Testament is really one single story, right? That the story of Israel in the Old Testament is really, the story of Israel is really the story of the church in the New Testament, in the, in the Old Testament, right? That Israel and the church are interconnected, right? That they're one and the same uh, people, right? And that all the stories that we have in the Old Testament are really stories of the gospel, right? Um, so that... So that uh, what Abraham heard, the promises that he heard, right, was the gospel story. And so uh, I remember, I was, who was I talking with? Someone was saying, um, I think it was Eric, right? You were saying, <laughs> you were saying how like, you like uh, some terminology, right? Because then it helps you to uh, understand and frame things and you can go on and read other things, right? All right, so I'm going to give you, you know, the big picture and then the big terminology because um, I think it's very helpful, okay? So that if you go on and do other readings, it'll all make sense. All right, so 
if you read the if you read the Bible from the assumption of continuity, right, that that position is called covenant theology. Okay, covenant theology. The reason why it's called covenant theology is because it's decided that there is a a covenant of grace. Okay, and it encompasses the Old and New Testament, right? So that if you're an Old Testament person and you're a New Testament person, you're saved, right? You're found righteous before God by grace in Christ. You receive this through faith, okay? And and the difference is that uh, in the Old Testament, you sort of look forward to Christ, but in the New Testament, you look back. But it's still Christ, what he does. And so that's, there's a unity, right? And you're saved by grace. And the difference between the Old and New Testament you can think of is shadow and reality. Alright, so... What's the relationship between the shadow and reality? Let's say, right, that you see this shadow. That's not a very good shadow. <laughs> but let's say, you know, you're like, I don't know, like that, right? <laughs> okay? Let's say this is a building, right? And you see this shadow, okay? Now you look at the shadow, and the shadow tells you some things about the reality, about the one who's casting the shadow, right? So you can kind of see the shape of the person, and you could say, that's Tony, right? <laughs> so now here's Tony, you know. Walking along. Well, he's just like this. He has his arm down, right? <laughs> and so the shadow So the shadow the shadow is not the reality, but the shadow gives you all kinds of information about the reality, right? And that's exactly what we have in the Old and New Testament, right? So that if you look at the Old Testament, there's all of these strange stories, right? Stories about the temple, stories about sacrifice, stories about Abraham sacrificing his son Isaac, but then the ram is substituted, the stories about Passover. Uh, we've been looking at the book of Judges, right, in small groups, stories about all those judges. And all of those things are shadows of the reality. And what's the reality? The gospel, right? Christ. Yeah? I'm a poet, and so I think... <laughs> Poetically, and I just think after the cross, we have the risen Son. Yeah. And he cast and he casts light on the cross. Yeah. Back to the Old Testament. Yeah. So the, the shadow on the Old Testament is the cross. Sure. And we see the Son. Sure, absolutely right. So that you can kind of see like the shadowy form. I'm a terrible artist. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you, see, you see these pictures, right? Does that make sense? Um, another way to think of the relationship between the Old and New Testament is uh, 
promise and fulfillment. Okay, promise and fulfillment. So that all of these promises are given in the Old Testament, right? Promises to given to Abraham, promises given to Abra- uh, Israel. And all of these things are fulfilled in the New Testament in the church. So that it's all of a piece. It's all interconnected. It's all a single story. And when you read the Bible in that way, right? When you read the Bible through this assumption, through this paradigm of continuity, through covenant theology, what you see then is that Israel is the church in the Old Testament. And therefore you see that circumcision, that baptism is basically circumcision in the New Testament. Does that make sense? So that if you start with this assumption of continuity, this paradigm, you don't need to see explicit verses in the New Testament that state baptize infants. Because you start with the assumption that it's all interconnected and therefore whatever instructions you see about circumcision must therefore apply to baptism. Unless there's a clear explicit verse that says it's different, right? Of course, there are differences between circumcision and baptism, right? We talked about circumcision is bloody, baptism, there's no blood, right? But the difference is between promise and fulfillment, right? Or shadow and reality. But they're essentially the same, okay? Now, if you start with the other assumption, which is discontinuity, uh, the, the word for, the theology for that is, does anyone know? Dispensationalism. Yes, dispensationalism. Okay, so dispensationalism. In dispensationalism, the assumption is that the Old and New Testament are two separate stories. That Israel and the church are not the same people, right? That Israel's story is different than the church's story. And that circumcision and baptism are not linked. They're not connected. Right? So let me, let, me, let me write this down. Israel is not the church. Circumcision is not baptism. Right? So that God relates to Israel by a different set of rules than he relates to the church. Circumcision, there's a whole bunch of set of rules, right? And ways that circumcision should be done. And those rules and ways do not apply to baptism, right? So that if you start with the assumption of discontinuity, then what do you say? You say, okay, don't look at the Old Testament. Let's just look at the New Testament. And what does the New Testament say about baptism? Does the New Testament say that, baptism, that uh, infants should be baptized? Where is the explicit verse? If there's no explicit verse, then you don't baptize babies. That, that's, that's how the argument works, right? So then you say, but, 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 Abraham circumcised his children. But then if you're starting with the assumption of discontinuity, you say, well, no, that, that argument doesn't work. Does that make sense? Does that, so it all, it all starts with your assumption. So really, like, if, if you give arguments for infant baptism to someone who's starting from the perspective of dispensationalism, the arguments don't make any sense, Right? But if, you, the, if a dispensationalist gives you arguments for why you should have believer's baptism, for someone who starts from the context of covenant theology, you say, well, no, you're reading the Bible all wrong. <laughs> right? Does that make sense? 
Any questions or thoughts? So that's kind of like the master paradigm. Now that we've like spent four weeks uh, looking at infant baptism, we're sort of taking a step back and looking at it. Like, what, what are the assumptions? What, what are the uh, interpretational pr paradigms? Yeah. Would you also want to say that it's not just a matter of assumptions, but what does most justice to the New Testament text itself? Sure. The of the text? Sure. And I think both dispensationalists and covenant theology theologians would say that their way of reading would do best justice to the New Testament, right? And so, I mean, how, are we going to settle that right now, covenant theology and dispensationalism? No. That would be like a whole other six-week lesson. Uh, so I'm not going to, uh, what is it, settle it for you guys. Um, but if you've been listening to right, my preaching, if you've been listening to, uh, for example, a small group in, uh, on the book of Judges, right, you guys will see that I start from covenant theology. Right, that I'm starting from the point of continuity, right? So that when we looked at, for example, all those judges, all of those judges, what, what is the story about? Is it just basically failed leaders of Israel? No. They're pictures, they're shadows of the true judge, the true king to come. Um, any other thoughts? Or, oh, actually, I gave you guys a verse. Okay, one verse. This is not going to settle the matter, but... Uh, maybe just, you know, a hint. Okay, Galatians 3.8. Can I have Meredith read it? And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, and you shall all the nations be blessed. Yeah, I think that's, it, it's such a stunning verse because you almost want to say when you read the verse, Paul, you're like confusing categories, right? But he's not. And I think he's, you know, I think covenant theology comes out from you know, the way Paul reads the, New Test uh, the Old Testament. So the Paul's saying, if you look at the story of Abraham, right? He was promised all these things, right? He was promised land. He was promised children. You don't hear the promise given to Abraham, if you believe in Jesus, you'll be saved, right? You're, he's given these promises of land and children, but Paul reads Abraham and he says, what he was given was the gospel. So that these things, land, children, is a picture of the gospel fulfilled in the church. Does that make sense? Okay. That is like such a quick, quick, quick summary. I just wanted to give you like how, you know, these master theological paradigms influence the whole discussion. Any thoughts, comments? No? If you're really fascinated by dispensationalism, I was trained at a school that's kind of the mecca for that, so I'll draw you pictures if you want. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take you to lunch next time. <laughs> One of napkins. That's right. Sean went to uh, Dallas, right? Yeah. Okay. Any other thoughts or comments? No? Okay. All right. So, uh, point number two. This is the final argument, and then we'll be done with infant baptism. All right. The final argument for infant baptism is uh, church history. I just want to emphasize once more again um, that the whole issue of infant baptism is not a core issue. It's not a primary issue. It's a secondary issue. The core issues are issues of salvation, the gospel, right? So that some of you might be wondering, 
you know, the case for infant baptism seems weak to me. I don't, I don't accept it, or I don't, I, don't, I don't buy it. That's okay. You can still belong to the church. That's not a necessity. And then the, maybe the question you guys are thinking is, if I have children, do they have to be baptized? And the answer is no, <laughs> right? If you're not convinced, if, it, if you don't think it's biblical, then you don't have to, you don't, your children do not have to be baptized. This is not something that is going to be imposed. Does that make sense, right? So I, I, a big part of the reason why I'm teaching through this class is because I'm preparing you for what's to come. What's to come is that Judah is going to be baptized, right? Okay, so I want to explain so it doesn't seem so crazy, strange, weird, right? Um, all right, so again, it's not essential, but it's very important. All right, uh, final argument for infant baptism in church history. So I want to read to you the italics there. Um, principle of interpreting church practices where scripture seems unclear is look at the early church. We have to remember, right, that the New Testament uh, is a document for its time. So that uh, whatever the controversies, whatever the questions, whatever the difficulties were, when the New Testament was written, that's what gets all the press, you know? That's what gets addressed, that's what Paul uh, uh, writes about. And that's not to say, you know, that we as modern Christians can't benefit from reading those things, right? Because really the sin issues are kind of the same, right? A huma humans are humans regardless of what time. But, okay, but uh, some modern controversies that we modern Christians kind of fight over or argue about, they didn't exist in the New Testament. And so they get no press. And so therefore, when we as modern Christians sort of debate about it, we look to the New Testament and it's like, where's, where's the discussion? Where are the clear verses that tell you which way it should go? And in those situations, we, we look at church history, right? And I think that's very helpful. Um, because church history, people practice things, things don't change. Right? They do it, and it's kind of the assumption until in modern times, all of a sudden, there's like controversy, right? And so uh, I gave the example of uh, the Christian Sabbath is Sunday, not, not Saturday. We looked at this a while back, right? That if you actually look at wh um, where in the Bible does it say that uh, the Christian Sabbath is Sunday? There's like three verses, I think, that uh, sort of indicate, but it isn't super strong. Um, there isn't like a slam dunk verse that you can say where Paul says, and you shall observe the Sabbath on Sunday, right? And so how do we know that it's supposed to be Sunday? And the answer is, well, that's because that's how the church has always done it, right? From the very earliest days in the ancient church, the church has always celebrated worship on Sunday, not Saturday. And the only time somebody objected to this and, and made it a controversy was a modern group called the Seventh-day Adventists, right? In the mid-19th century, so 1,800 years after the birth of the church, this modern group comes around and says, you know, I think it's actually Saturday. And our response would be, we may not have super strong explicit verses, but look at church history, right? It's always been Sunday. Does that make sense? So the paradigm or, or, or the argument I'm trying to make here is if something seems relatively unclear in the New Testament, there's no strong explicit verses, a good thing is to look at church history. And if church history is uniform or universal, 
then go with church history, right? If there's doubt. Okay, but that's not to say that um, church history trumps or contradicts scripture, right? So let me, let me write this down. Our final authority is scripture, okay? But church history should make us pause and consider, right? Um, because, again, practices don't change. So whatever we see being practiced in the ancient church, we should really take seriously, you know? Because people don't, like, say, ah, oh, who cares what our forefathers did? Who cares about the way our grandparents and our parents did it? We're just going to do a new thing. Maybe that's true in the modern world, but people in the ancient world, you never do that. Whatever was the way things were done, you just do it even if you don't understand it. You just follow, right? Okay, are there any, any questions or thoughts about that paradigm? No? Okay, so turn to the next page then. So that if you look at early church history, right? The early church universally practiced infant baptism. So let me share my own story. Um, when I was in college, I first started to attend uh, a church that did infant baptism. And I thought it was really weird. And so I asked everyone, like, what's the argument? Like, can you explain to me biblically what infant baptism, how does it work? And I heard the arguments, and it seemed crazy to me. It didn't make any sense. Uh, I wasn't convinced at all. And so I remember, right, I was in college and I was studying um, history. I was actually a history major, right? So I looked at the ancient church and I was studying the Reformation. And I saw that in the ancient church, it the ancient church universally practiced infant baptism. And that really made me pause and say, okay, let me look at those arguments again, <laughs> right? Let me try to, try to understand it because it cannot be where if the ancient church does something and you contradict it, you have to have really, really strong arguments, I think, right? So let's, let's just look at uh, some of the quotes I put in there. Um, and I'll read it for you. Hippolytus... This is uh, early 3rd century, wrote this. Baptize first the children, and if they can speak for themselves, let them do so. Otherwise, let their parents or other relatives speak for them. Right? He says, let their parents or other relatives speak for them. Here we have this idea of what? Representation, right? That the parents speak for the children. So that the children don't have to have faith. Right? It's the parents' faith that counts. Uh, look at origin. Uh, the church received from the apostles the tradition of giving baptism even to infants. The apostles to whom were committed the secrets of the divine sacraments knew there are in everyone innate strains of sin which must be washed away through water and the spirit. I think what's really interesting is he says, origin says that the ancient church practices infant baptism. Why? Because they were taught it by the apostles. They got it from Peter and Paul, right? And James. Um, and I think that's a very, very uh, compelling statement. So they're not saying, hey, we don't know if the apostles taught this, but we just started doing it. Or the apostles taught something else and we contradicted them. They're saying we got it directly from the apostles. The apostles, this is the practice we're receiving. And remember, right, this is origin. So this is maybe like two or three or four generations 
after the last apostles died. And again, in the ancient world, you don't mess with received tradition, right? Whatever, like your sensei master taught you, you do. <laughs> you don't recreate, you don't do a new thing. Um, all right, Cyprian. Uh, before I read this quote, first I want you to notice that he links it to circumcision, right? And it, what's really interesting is that um, the debate wasn't whether you should baptize infants or not, but the debate was when should you baptize them? Because remember that in circumcision, you circumcise the boy eight days old. So they were actually debating, should we actually baptize only when they're eight days old? So let me read you the quote. In respect of the case of the infants, which you say ought not to be baptized within the second or third day after their birth, and that the law of ancient circumcision should be regarded, so that you think that one who is just born should not be baptized and sanctified within the eighth day, we all thought very differently in our council. For in this course, which you thought was to be taken, no one agreed, but we all rather judge that the mercy and grace of God is not to be refused to anyone born of man. All right, listen to Cyprian's argument, right? He says, he's talking to his friend, right? And he's saying, you're saying you cannot baptize before the eighth day because you cite this example of circumcision. And circ the baby boys were circumcised on the eighth day. And therefore, it's wrong to baptize before eight days old. And then Cyprian says, no, no, no. You can baptize before eight days. It's fine. Notice that the debate isn't even whether it's infants or not, but it's on the day based on the link to circumcision. Does that make sense? And I think also what's interesting is that uh, in the ancient church, they understood it to be linked to circumcision, right? So that this isn't an argument that modern people kind of made up after the fact. This is an argument that has always been, th this very same argument has always existed down through the centuries, right? The circumcision. All right, let me read you the last quote, Augustine. Uh, the custom of Mother Church in baptizing infants is certainly not to be scorned, nor is it to be regarded in any way as superfluous, meaning unneeded, uh, nor is it to be believed that, this, that its tradition is anything except apostolic, meaning from the apostles. All right? There are no quotes from the ancient church that says a significant portion of our churches do not baptize babies. Right? It's, I mean, these are just like a handful of quotes. There's just many, many quotes that we have where it's the universal practice of the ancient church is infant baptism. All right, uh, next section. Infant baptism was universally practiced by all early branches of Christianity. So, okay, we have branches that are, exist today that trace their heritage all the way back, all the way back to like the third century or second century, you know, that's a little bit debatable. And so if you look at all, you know, look at these five branches, right? The Greek or East, Eastern, uh, the uh, Eastern Orthodox or Greek Orthodox Church, the Roman Catholic Church, the Syriac Church. Where's the Syriac Church based in? Do you guys know? These are all geographic kind of... Syria, that's right. Okay. Uh, the Armenian Church. Let me write this down because this used to confuse the heck out of me when I was a kid or when I was... College. <laughs> okay. The Armenian Church. Okay. Armenian is not the same thing as... Arminian. Okay? What's that little vowel? What's the difference? Does anyone know the difference between these two? That's ethnic. Wait, wait, no, no not, not Sean, because that's not fair. That's ethnic. 
Which one's that? Going with E. Going with E? Are you sure? Yeah. All right. You're right. So this is like. It's like And then what's 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 the I? Arminian. I'm asking Eric. Oh, um, it's like a theological viewpoint from like Arminius. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, this would be versus Ar Arminian is not Calvinist, right? I could build up here. <laughs> okay. This used to confuse the heck out of me, I remember, because um, I grew up in Glendale. Glendale is the highest concentration of Armenians outside of Armenia. And then I went to college, and people were saying, Armenian theology is not correct. I was like, what's wrong with my brothers down in Glendale? Why are you bagging on them? Okay, so... Okay. I don't know how Armenians talk about Armenians. You know, they, 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 maybe they use a different word, right? I don't know. But, uh, um, okay. So the Armenian church, right? Uh, the Coptic church, not Sean. Do you guys know where the Coptic church is? Eric. Coptic land? Coptic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Egypt, Ethiopia uh, is the Coptic church, right? So uh, it's like the Copts. They're, they're not like Popo, but they are. <laughs> they're the ancient Egyptians, right? <laughs> the modern Egyptians are actually Arabs, and the Copts are the ancient Egyptians. Um, so the Coptic church, okay? So if you look at all of these separate churches, right, which still exist today, but they have ancient, 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 ancient roots that stretch all the way back to the early church era. All of them have, all of them do, infant baptism, right? How does that happen, right? It must be that the ancient church practiced infant baptism. All right, final thing. Um, the practice of infant baptism was first challenged by the Anabaptists, right? Anabaptists means the rebaptizers. And basically, this group came about during the Protestant Reformation, and they said, hey, this practice of infant baptism, this is wrong. Those who are baptized as babies, that's not a real baptism. So as an adult, you have to be rebaptized, right? And this, this was the very first time that anyone said, hey, I don't know about infant baptism. And this happened 1,500 years after the church has universally been practicing this in all the various branches, right? And actually, how did they come with, up with this argument? They, had, um, they believed in modern-day prophets. So their prophets would say things that you don't necessarily see in scripture, and therefore you can sort of follow what their prophets say. Um, some of you might say, okay, you know, maybe, but isn't that the exact same argument with the Protestant Reformation, right? Right? In the Reformation with Luther and Calvin, aren't they basically contradicting what was practiced all along, all the doctrines, and aren't they saying, here's something that's in the Bible, maybe it wasn't practiced back then, right? And that's not what, what was happening in the Reformation. In the Reformation, if you read Luther and Calvin, they were saying that they were recovering what was always taught in the ancient church. So they would quote Augustine, and they would say, Augustine taught justification by faith alone. You know? they were, and they were saying that the medieval church corrupted the doctrines. They weren't saying, hey, we're doing a new thing. The Anabaptists weren't saying, hey, we're recovering what the ancient church always did, which was they never 
baptize infants, they were saying we're doing a completely new thing and we can do it because we got prophets, you know. Um, so the Anabaptists, no one's ever heard of them, right, because they kind of died out. Uh, they were kind of a radical, crazy group. Um, the first kind of respectable, uh, uh, you know, major group that said question infant baptism is the Baptists, right? In the English Reformation. And so this happened uh, in the 1600s. And uh, they were the first ones that we would not consider a crazy radical group. Um, and they questioned uh, infant baptism. And so they advocate what's called believer's baptism. Okay, which is that only adult believers should be baptized. And I would say that the Baptists are the majority group in America right now. Right? And so this is kind of why maybe infant baptism seems weird. Uh, it seemed weird to me in college, right? Because most of us kind of grew up in Baptistic churches. Um, and so it seems like the infant Baptist people are the crazy fringe group. But historically, it's the Baptists. I wouldn't call them crazy fringe, but I would call them new. Let's just say that. They're the new group. They're the fancy modern you know, hipsters. And it's the infant Baptists who trace all the way back to the earliest centuries, to the early church, and arguably to the very apostles themselves. Okay? And so, you know, some of you maybe aren't convinced by the argument from, from history. I remember, I have a friend actually and, uh, who believes in infant baptism. And uh, I said, why do you believe in infant baptism? He says, church history. I said, what about all the biblical arguments? He said, I don't understand any of it, but it's church history. So for him, it's like church history is the argument. Um, I wouldn't say it should necessarily be that. I think church history should definitely help inform you and maybe make you relook at the biblical arguments, right? So if the biblical arguments don't make any sense, church history should make you say, let me look at that again, right? Um, are there any thoughts or comments, questions? No? Okay, so that's it. Uh, I remember some people asked me way back months ago, Pastor Michael, you believe in infant baptism. Can you explain that to me in just like two or three minutes? And I was like, I'm going to do a Sunday school series on it. It's going to take five lessons for each 45 minutes. And I feel like, ah, oh, okay, I made my case. Now, now you understand, at least. I'm not crazy. Um, all right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, Lord, I just pray that uh, as we look at uh, ancient history, um, Lord, we would look at the wisdom of our forefathers. Uh, not that they trump scripture, but uh, they help us to have perspective. Uh, Lord, we pray, uh, thanking you that... Um, you give us this wonderful gift of uh, baptism, the sign and seal of the covenant. Uh, we, Lord, we pray that um, we would really draw comfort and assurance from it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.